Hello and welcome to Dead in Goal, a companion rugby league podcast to the monthly magazine Inside Sport. Uh, my name is James Smith, editor of Inside Sport. Um, it's a massive show, this one. Uh, later on, you're going to hear from rugby league legend Mike Eden uh, via an archive interview um, I found from last year, um, which I thought you guys would really like. Um, but my main, my main guest this week is someone who I think is just about one of the best long-form sports writers in Australia, if not the best, uh, Robert Drain. Um, he's been writing for Inside Sport for eons now, and I thought it was about time he finally had a go um, on this show, seeing as though he's a rugby league man at heart, as well as an AFL disciple. Um, recently, Bob um, wrote one of the best studies on a societal-slash-sports issue you'll ever read. Um, the story is, in fact, our cover yarn for the August issue of Inside Sport, which is on sale from Thursday, July 11. Uh, so here he is, everyone, uh, Mr. Robert Drain. Bob, um, thanks very much for taking the time to appear on um, this podcast, mate. Um, you, you've been contributing feature articles to Inside Sport for a long time now. Um, can you remember the, the first one that you sent in to us back in the day? Back in 1792, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the first one I sent, I, I was, uh, at the time I was, I was working in, actually in the public sector in the Department of Health and Family Services, and... Uh, and I uh, wrote a, I wrote a story on uh, I don't know why I did it because I I'd never really written anything I didn't come from a great tradition of journalism or or, or even academia in my family <laughs> or uh, you know writing but uh, I did a story on on boxing and why men fight and Jeff Fennick and all that sort of stuff and and uh, flicked it through to uh, via via fax to Inside Sport um, I had to go down to news agents first and have a look at this mag. Uh, I'd just seen it appear on the stand and, and have a look at the masthead and see all the names <coughs> and I saw uh, a number so I, I faxed it through and Graham Sims answered the phone and uh, and, and uh, or, or rang me up afterwards and said that was good, what else can you do? We can't use that because uh, we've just done a story on Fennec but what else can you do? And I said, oh, mate, I'll, I'll write about anything as long as you pay me um, so uh, that, that's sort of how it began. That was back in 1992. Wow. And, and yeah. what, what, did you, I, know, I know that you said that you hadn't written before, but did you always have it in you? Did you always think about doing it one day? No. Um, hmm. It's a funny thing. It, it, it's, um, you know, uh, I, I, when I was younger, um, I, was what they, I was what they call in the class, classics uh, a flog, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I just went from one job to the next. Uh, didn't really have much ambition. wasn't very good at school. All those things, and so no, I can't say that any kind of literary aspirations uh, entered my mind. I, occasionally, I'd take a few thoughts down on paper, just mm. write things down, um, just because. You know what I mean? I, I just what you, you have this urge to get things out in words a little bit, and but it's not as though I filled up reams and reams of you know, um, hmm. and uh, yeah, basically I went around doing my own thing in life. Uh, it was only uh, I did a I did a sort of uh, via a, a somebody I knew. I did a sort of public speaking course back in about nineteen eighty nine. 
where you had to actually share your thoughts with people, you know, prepare a speech and all that. I'd never done anything like that before, never shared my thoughts, you know, before <laughs> with anyone. Being a bloke and I think, and all I think, that. I think, yeah. I, think, I think that was a trigger. I think that sort of got me thinking about uh, doing it for a career. Um, and, and so that, that was, but that was basically it. I never, I can't say I'm, I'm like a lot of other people in the writing game who you know, aspired to be a writer and spent their youth honing their craft or, or journalists who went through the qualifications and, you know, drank with all the right people and, and developed networks and all that sort of stuff. None of that occurred. It was all kind of, I guess, a little bit under the radar. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Good, good answer. It's yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Like it's refreshing to hear somebody say that, you know, because so so often, every whatever people are doing, that's what they wanted to do their whole life. So it's really good to to hear that you yeah. had that satisfying career change sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it was satisfying. I mean, it's a, it's a um, no, I was distinctly lacking in ambition as a kid, but I think that's kind of a bit, it's a bit of a working class thing. You, you've Sort of people will just have some vague thing about, you no, know, you know, try and get as much of an education as you can, and uh, you know, uh, get a good job, and you know, build up some super. And well, unfortunately, uh, I probably never did many of those things, mm. <laughs> yeah. but uh, but I, I nevertheless, uh, uh, yeah, uh, even those ambitions were. I, I don't know. I never really thought much about the future, I guess. And um, but there was two things I had, I suppose, uh, that, that in my advantage as far as working with words. Uh, I, I, my mum sort of made me read before I went to school. Yeah. Um, and and uh, even though <laughs> as soon as I hit school, the education was in decline straight away. But but nevertheless, by the time I went to school, I could read pretty well. Yeah. And also, uh, um, I, um, I when I was about fifteen, I made this decision uh, that if I ever read anything, I never wanted to pass up uh, understanding never wanted to what's the word uh, not know what a word meant right. you know and I, I, I wrote down this lexicon uh, for myself of words that, that uh, I'd collected words that uh, uh, that I didn't know the meaning of <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and just kept on filling this book you know it was one of those indexed books that ABC you know and uh, and just write write things under the letter that uh, that they started with and and uh, I'd never write the definition and the word, just the word. Mm. And uh, and if I couldn't remember it for whatever reason, I'd put a dot next to it. That meant I had a metal block for it until I eventually I'd use it in some sentence or something, you know, just to make sure I remembered it. So in that way, you, you were kind of had. I, I guess I kind of had some vague idea that I, uh, that, that words were going to play some part in in uh, in my my future. I didn't think professionally necessarily because you know. It's a bit of a romance, isn't it? I'm going to make a job, a uh, living being a writer. You know, <laughs> generally people see romance in that, but it's not necessarily something that is practical to do. No, exactly right. You've got to be a little bit different to want to do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I ask this question not to um, chase plaudits or or whatever yep. the term is, but but yep. um, to generally get your gauge on on the important institution that this magazine has been even before yep. people like I arrived like like what what is what, what what has kept you writing for the mag like because it really hits a spot with you doesn't it you're still a bit of a fan of the magazine too oh yeah look look uh, uh, first of all um uh, you know uh, writing about sport 
let's face it, you know, sort of sort of pays the bills, you know, uh, <laughs> being a freelancer. Uh, so there's that. But also, no, I, I think Inside Sport, when it when it began, there's no doubt that um, it was a great idea. I, I, I'd already co- collected what we had of the relics of the of the general sport magazines in this country, um, Sports Fan back in the 70s, um, and a couple of others that, that uh, the Sporting Life and things that went back to the 30, whatever. Uh, they generally they were great mags, but they they didn't seem to have the they weren't robust. They, they didn't last. Right. Um, and Inside Sport, I think uh, the vision for that with Greg Hunter, the original editor, and, and Graham Sims, uh, was uh, basically that we really would get behind the, the scenes of sport uh, and and also the quality of... Uh, and I, can, I can't say this is particularly the case in the world we live in now, mm-hmm. but back then, the quality of the con. con contributions were still important the photography and the writing and stuff yep. really mattered you know greg basically believed that that would um that would elevate the magazine to the status that uh, that he wanted it to have which was you know uh, that of australia's number one sporting mag mm. and it got there didn't it really it uh, did. uh, well yeah, yeah especially mm. in those those days of the 90s um when money was being thrown around all over the place to send us here, there, and everywhere, and um, hmm. Greg was able to uh, look at any um, any uh, uh, overtures from from the stars or, or uh, just you know uh, who wanted to be in the magazine, he could look at them sort of with a calm, cool, critical eye and say no, or yep, or you know he, he could choose, uh, and and as well as that, he could also uh, attract some really good contributors and he did he had some you know good writers and photographers over the over the years uh that ensured the magazine you know maintained that quality yeah no terrific and uh, so you live in melbourne now but but you grew up in sydney didn't you like like whereabouts and what were your sort of memories of growing up in sydney as a kid yeah well i i uh went to sydney when i was eight and uh and uh i when, when I first went up there, I, I uh, uh, it, was, it was another. It's amazing how different uh, the world is now. Melbourne and Sydney more or less speak the same language. You know, back then it was really funny uh, how different uh, things were. Even in terms of little descriptions of little things, you know, language uh, were different. Uh, and uh, I uh, had to adapt to the the idea of. Uh, of you know at school you know in in your leisure time playing a bit of rugby league and, and let's not get into my sporting career because it's not great okay <laughs> I wasn't good I wasn't necessarily good at anything yeah. but I but I, I um it, what I did do was having been brought up in Melbourne it's really funny how um, even though I was only eight certain things um, become intrinsic you, you sort of um, you know how to kick a ball. And and so uh, right from the start, even when I was playing in the school ground or when I played, you know, like intra-school kind of games, people would get me to boot the ball, you know, uh-huh. uh, and you know for for uh, you know for uh, kicking for touch and all that sort of stuff, you know, um, or, or just setting up some dirty big mongrel punt, you know, and some some uh, rainmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's funny how that's the I suppose the one the one trick I had. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it was a, it was great. I mean, I, I really got into it. after that. My life was a tale of two cities. I followed Collingwood in the in the footy down in Melbourne, yeah. and I followed St George up there, and they were very similar. Uh, both Collingwood and, and St George kept on making finals and grand finals in the seventies, even when it seemed they were making them just because they was they were who they were. You know what I mean? Yeah, they weren't yeah. necessarily they weren't necessarily the best team in the competition, but uh, just the sheer kind of um, aura of those two teams. They they, they tended to to uh, uh, work their way through the ladder and, and make make grand finals. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then so so you mentioned league there before. Like, what what is some of your earliest memories of um, of, of, of watching it and playing it? Like and, and well, be, being around it in Sydney. Well, yeah. well, yeah. Well, you're you're in awe of um, you, when you when you're only eight year old and you found out you go up to Sydney and you find out there's this legendary team called St George who's won, you know, uh, at the time ten uh, premierships in a row. You know, and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And of course, you you know all these stellar names. Suddenly, the suddenly you know what it's like when you're a kid. Mm. The names of all these people suddenly become like like. These are these are people who inhabit the heavens, you know. Um, mm. Langlands, Gaznier, and um, <coughs> you know, uh, and, and guys like Beetson and O'Neill and Sattler and uh, all those blokes. Uh, they, they, they're kind of uh, you know uh, almost like you know, demigods to you as a kid, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's 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 my early memory of it. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, like like. I know you're only eight years old or, or around that age, but like, can you remember what what the league world in Sydney was like at the back end of that dragon stretch of, of eleven premierships? Like, do you remember it as everyone being fed up with the same team winning, or did people really recognise they were witnessing history? Like, uh, no, yeah. uh, what's funny? No, it's yeah, um, it's hard to say. Uh, hmm. there, so many kids were Saints fans. It's a bit like Essendon down here. Okay. <laughs> um, Saints did a very good job in 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 that you know uh, in that uh, primitive '60s way of publicising their team just by winning grand finals. Whereas yeah. in uh, in Melbourne, Essendon did it because Kevin Sheedy was very savvy, and every second kid's an Essendon supporter. You know, well, it was the same up there with Saints. So many kids were Saints supporters. Mm. And uh, and I must admit, I jumped on that bandwagon at eight. You know, I just thought, yep. well, who else would you follow? You know. Um, <laughs> you know, get the satisfaction of them winning premierships. The funny thing is, the year I went up there was the last one they won. Oh, after right. that, it was a after that it was a dry old uh, time in the seventies. Even though, as I say, they kept on making you know grand finals and all that, but but it was still the, what I remember is the savagery yep. of the rivalry between them and South Sydney, Western wow. suburbs. Yep. Um, I remember that savagery. I remember you know the the seventy seventy one grand final. Balmain's another one. You know when Balmain. Uh, beat South in that upset in 1969, yep. uh, and uh, I, I still remember the, the, the savagery of the rivalry and and how how damn hard a game. I mean, oh look, believe me, back in the 60s, Aussie rules was a bloodbath. But yep. Um, yep. Uh, but uh, <laughs> rugby league was another dimension because because no one no one seemed to get punished for <laughs> for belting each other in the bonds, you know. Yeah. Uh, ever. <laughs> So it was, no. it was a good game. It was a good game for a kid to watch. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> no, and then you were telling me before that you actually went to the seventy-seven grand final replay. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, I did. I did. I went Far to both. I, it's funny because the two teams I followed, yeah. Collingwood in Melbourne and 
and St George and Sydney both drew their grand final and had to have a replay. Isn't that amazing? I, I know that everybody knows that, but that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was quite. It was quite amazing. And look, they were heady old days because uh, you know St George. It seemed like it seemed like a drought that lasted eons when when St George were not winning premierships. You know, after after the the sixty six one. Yeah. Um. It was. It was. Yeah, it seemed like eons, and uh, of course, you know, we all turned up, you know, to, to the MC, to the MCG, to the SCG in uh, uh, that that September, and, and uh, for those two games, and um, uh, it was just an amazing experience. You know, that the drawn one was was such a tense, uh, crazy game, and and then then you know, in the second one, guys like Ted Goodwin emerged, and you mm. know, Rod Reddy, and all those guys. Um, and and uh, did the job for them, but yeah, it was a it was a, it was a, an exciting time in a lot, in a lot of ways. Yeah, did did you get a seat at the ground that day, or what was oh, the, yeah, what was yeah, the oh, setup yeah, like? Was, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, there's no doubt it doesn't take much to fill the SCG. No, <laughs> well, back in those days, anyway. Uh, but no, I I made sure I got a seat. Back in those days, you, of course, you used to just roll up to the ground. Yep. yep. Uh, and I I used to make sure I rolled up to the ground. You know, real early, you know. Uh, I had nothing else to do with my Saturday anyway, so I'd, you know, <laughs> I'd take the stroll up for Bow Street and across the park and, you know, into the SCG and and, uh, and just make sure I planted myself in a seat. That's what it was like in those days. You yeah, know? yeah, there's a video on YouTube and it's um, and it's of a group of young kids. They, they can't be, geez, if they're 18, they're only 18 in one day, but, yeah, they're sitting yeah. in front of the gates on grand final morning, just sinking um, VB stubbies, and, and it might have even been a long neck in there, like somewhere. But yeah, that they were just like. Was that in '77? Um, it was. Oh, you know what? It was probably early '80s, I reckon. I'll, I'll try and find right. it. Um, mm. But yeah, the, the, I, I see what you mean. There was no booking through Ticketek or anything, was there? Like. Oh no, <laughs> no! You just roll up to the ground. That was great. You know, it was um, um, same in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd go to the Collingwood games when I, because as I say, it was Taylor Two Cities school holidays. I'd spend, um, you know, coming to Melbourne and and go to Collingwood games. You know, and um, yeah, uh, and same thing. Yeah, you just roll up, and it was a, a nice, great, casual experience. You know, you'd you'd get off the train, navigate your way through the brawls in the car park. Uh, you know, go through the front entrance and. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and just get a seat. Yeah, yeah, whatever you could get. Yeah, the brawls, the brawls in the car park were fairly were part of the entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! And um, in Melbourne, in uh, Melbourne, anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you were about to say this off air before I interrupted you, but I wanted you to save this. So um, so so you're up here for a few years. You got rugby league in in your veins and everything, and then you yep. and then you moved down to Victoria, where the code yep. basically didn't exist. Like, uh, what was yep. that like? Well, that was, that was weird. I mean, in nineteen seventy eight, uh, when I came back down here, trying to find out who won, who was winning, you know, games in the final series was really hard. Which is really interesting because um, Melbourne is actually has always been much more accepting. Again, you notice things about each state. And Melbourne was always much more accepting of other states. Sydney tended to have all these, these preconceptions about Melbourne. Ah, yeah, you know, four seasons in one day, aerial ping pong and all that sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, Melbourne didn't tend to have those kind of opinions much. But funnily enough, 
it was still parochial in a sense that it was really hard compared to, to watching Aussie rules in Sydney. It was really hard watching rugby league in Melbourne. Um, in Sydney, they, they televised the 1970 uh, Aussie rules grand final between Carlton and Collingwood. Yeah. And after that, um, the ABC had the... Um, had the they must have got good ratings or something because after that ABC had the winners a show called the winners and every Saturday night they would show highlights from the games that day. Really? Um, it, it was great. You, you know, you'd always get plenty of Aussie rules. You know, and, and as time went on, they ended up you know televising televising games live every Saturday in Sydney and, and in Melbourne. In yeah. Melbourne, if you suggest to people that to, to televise a rugby league match, they just laugh at you. You know, back in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And in, the that... end, you, in the end, you would get it, but, but it'd be like scheduled for eleven o'clock at night, but it'd turn up at one or something. You know, it was, really? it, television's always been a bit loose in Melbourne. Wow, <laughs> yeah, isn't, isn't that incredible? Like, and a bit, yeah. While all that was going on, even back then, there was no talk of code wars and one game taking over the other. It just would have been that's on television. So yeah, people oh, would yeah. watch it. Yeah, yeah. Oh mate, it was it was fantastic. It was it was. Look, I, I remember the nineteen seventy three. Um, the 1973 Ashes Tour, yeah, um, which I used to love. Back in those days, Kangaroo Tours were just great. They were, okay. they were really something to look forward to. Yeah. <clears throat> but I remember um, a lot of people... I was down here on holidays then, from um, probably my September holidays or something uh, from school, and, and people in Melbourne were really looking forward to that Kangaroo Tour and us beating the Palms. Is that right? Because it was about, because it was about the Palms, you know? <laughs> and... Um, and uh, yeah, they they televise it live uh, on TV here in Melbourne, and 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 then you could start to see people were looking at guys like Ken Irvine and Bobby Fulton and, Ch and Changer and and Graham Eady and thinking these guys are these guys are, uh, are legends. These are really good, you know. They they're good at this this, this game they play, you know. <laughs> they, yeah. And um, and they got a thrill out of us beating, you know tough-ass pommy sides with blokes like Clippy Watson and, you know, other um, Liverpool Kiss uh, proponents, <laughs> you know, yeah. exponents. Uh, yeah, so, uh -huh. um, it was, uh, it was, a, people, people in Melbourne, once, when I were, once they were exposed to it, they really liked it, which is why I think in the end when Storm came down here, why they've been so popular, because once, once they know, they, they once, in Melbourne, they know people can call them their own. Um, you know, whether they're playing for Australia or playing for Victoria or whatever, then then people get behind them. Yeah, it's, I was going to ask you about the storm and whether. I mean, obviously, they're here to stay. They've been here twenty years. Yeah. Um, and what I found interesting, and I've been to a few Storm games over the years, and what I find interesting is that when you go to a Storm game, they're not AFL. Um, fans dressed up in purple jerseys, like they're rugby league fans, and you can tell that they are. You just know, same same, oh. same as you could tell an AFL fan when when you saw one. Like just a, I don't know, it just yeah, it's like a, a, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But no, yeah, no, you're yeah. absolutely right, mate. You're yeah. absolutely right. The, the, and and the, dif the difference is when you look around the, the, the two cities now. <coughs> I walk around Sydney and walk past a park and there's your four Aussie Rules goalposts there. Yep. I walk around parks here in Melbourne and there are your, your uh, Rugby Union, Rugby League goalposts. Yep. Uh, you know, um, it, it's it, it, it's becoming, you know, it, well, not becoming, it's well and truly um, integrated now. Y yes, yes, AFL's always got that, 
that large tribal following and, of, and of course, a big showcase crowd like the MCG. But, uh, but yeah, you'd have to say that there's no way in the world people are as, um, uh, as big. As a matter of fact, again, again in Sydney, and I still spend a lot of my time in Sydney and mm. Melbourne, as you know. Mm. I'm back and forth all the time. Um, in Sydney, there's still probably a bit more crook on the, on the Melbourne Storm thing um, than, um, than Melbourne would ever be about Sydney Swan. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a funny thing. Uh, Melbourne, Melbourne, well and truly embraces Sydney Swan. It's great, but but Sydney still gets a bit, a bit cynical and cherry and things about about Melbourne Storm. Of course, the origin didn't help. You know, the whole Murdoch uh, thing and yeah. and all that that didn't help. But that's that's well and truly gone now. They're a part of the competition and and they've done some remarkable, incredible things. Um, hmm. You know, and. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Melbourne's, Melbourne uh, is pretty proud of them. They're, they're glad to turn up to their games, and they they, they love it. Yeah, no, it's it's a terrific uh, day out of the storm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so um, uh, as I said in the intro at the start of this episode, for our August issue of Inside Sport, uh, you've written a brilliant piece on the South Sudanese slash AFL relationship, um, with a look in particular particular at how sport inspires social change like how, how long had you been thinking about this issue before you decided you'd like to air your ideas about it um in the magazine yeah. well um i don't know whether you know it's hard to say when anyone ever notices what you write because you know i just freelance you write something you send it off you don't know who reads it who doesn't <laughs> read it you know i'm not like a newspaper journal or anything where no, you no. sort of know what your readership is clickbait so, yeah but, but uh You'll notice that over the last maybe 20 years, first of all, racial stuff is something I've written a lot about. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I, I think I've always done it fairly, fairly kind of even-handedly. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't particularly have any particular agenda. I just think it's an interesting facet uh, of, of sport. Mm. Um, you know, the way, the way different races of people go about things, the way they, the way they uh, um, physically kind of manifest themselves on a field yeah. um, the way they kind of culturally the way they interpret uh, interpret goings on on a field you know I've always found that all that fascinating yeah. um, and and of course with the with the the Sudanese thing you know there have been a, a few social incidents as you know and and, uh, and uh, <coughs> it's certainly in Melbourne you know I know I know a few people who have been affected by those and uh, and I thought to myself okay it's a it sort of it seems to be a little bit out of proportion for the amount of people who are in this country. There are only twenty thousand Sudanese in this country. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but the thing is, I want even though I believe the incidents are true and they are, there's still the role of the media, of course. You know, yeah. um, the media <clears throat> um, has not given us many success stories from the Sudanese community. Mm. And, and I, in researching this article, and I knew this would happen, which is why I wanted to write it my own edification as well I tend to do that um, I, I, uh, I thought I came across a lot of people who who are really successful in the Sudanese community as lawyers teachers doctors um, you know bloody rocket science whatever you know yeah, um, yeah. A, a, as well as, as sports people <clears throat> and um, because they have such a respect for education when they come out here and a lot of people Australians need to know that most Sudanese people love being out here and are really grateful for being out here. Yeah. It's not what 
you know, it's not necessarily these these grainy kind of sinister images of, of, of African youth doing these really bold things, you know, um, is not necessarily typically, it's a, it's a community that's thriving and happy and, and they want to be positive and they want to address these things and, and um, they want to address it through simply overwhelming all that negative stuff with sheer positive achievement. And I think that's a, that's great, you know. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to play. The reason I wrote the article is because um, I'd like to help facilitate. I'd like to, to to enable that to occur if if I if I can, you know, if I can play some part. Yeah, yeah. And there's another part coming up in um, the next magazine after this, so people can can really see where you're about to go there. Um, but but in this first part, that's in our August yep. issue, uh, just to bring it back to league, um, you yep. you make mention of former league star um, Hazamel Mazari in your yarn. Um, your exact words are the achievements of the Hussein brothers or Nadir Hamden in the ring or El Mazari on the rugby league field were largely overlooked, even when yep. there seemed opportunities for encouragement. Are you able to yep. unpack that a little bit uh, for us? Yeah, well, you know, again, it's, it's interesting. It's a bit of a parallel with this whole Sunnis thing, isn't it? Because, hmm. you know, back in the early... Uh, what do they call it? Noughties, noughties, whatever you know, two thousand. Um, the, the, the Lebanese uh, gang thing was was in the was in the media a lot, you know, and uh, um, and uh, you know the whole people conflated the whole Lebanese Muslim. You know what people are like when they don't know much and they should know more. They tend to conflate all these things, including yeah. politicians. I might say. Yeah, you get on you um, get on a current affair and you have a look at what they're saying, and, and that's your opinion. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So back in those days, I was I, I was doing a, a a book I wrote called Fighters by Trade. It was a history of, of Australian prize fight, or it was Australian history through the lens of boxing, really. Yeah. And um and so, uh, writing about the the current state at the time was uh, the, the 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 group of people who were producing a lot of fighters were, in fact, the the, the uh, Arab Lebanese stroke Muslim community because. It always tends to be a reflection of where they are in society. Um, when they're considered to be the lowest, they produce the most boxes. That's the way it's always been. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, and, yeah. yeah, and so, and so, poor old uh, Hussey Hussain, Hussein Hussain. Mm. You know, the post nine eleven world. Um, he he said no he'd, chance, did he? Yeah, yeah he'd, he'd be, he'd be, <laughs> <laughs> he'd be going, getting on planes to the USA. You know, and uh, and uh, you know, what's your name, boy? The scene is seen, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't care if it was Saddam, 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 you know. It's, it's sort of, he, he was getting, you know, fleeced at airports all over the joint and, and uh, at, for, for just for being who he was and having the name he had. And, uh, mm. and so basically, but he wasn't bitter and twisted about all that or didn't go on about racism and all that. What he, what he was interested in was, that, as I said in the article, the mindsets of people. Um, the, the, the Lebanese kids who were embracing all the thug aspects of rap, which he didn't like, and of course the the uh, the people like the Australian government and others who, when they had the opportunity to encourage, and that's getting back to your question, to encourage that community uh, by by elevating the, the, the role models or heroes, whatever you want to call them, um, to a level of prominence, it didn't occur. Um, as, as I mentioned in the article, <laughs> Hussey was telling me how. John Howard was always in the habit of, of sending telegrams to um, to uh, uh, world title contenders when they had a big fight coming up, but he never they were never forthcoming with the with the Hussein brothers or Nader Hamden. 
Yeah, funny that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, again, politics. Dirty old game. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. No, um, brilliant stuff, Bob. Um, th- thanks so much for your time this week, mate. Um, so both you and both you and I are excited about uh, the August issue of Inside Sport uh, being on sale uh, from Thursday. It's an epi- epic issue, and 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 um, by the way, it's coming up next. I, I just wanted to, because you know your league, and I just thought I'd ask, like, um, yeah. what what are your most what what are your most vivid memories of a bloke like Mike Eden? Uh, from what you remember, yeah. Well, th- again, I came. I, I know one thing about him. I know it's Harry Eden's. I think it was Harry Eden's nephew or son. Or I think. I, I think. Oh yeah, it was his nephew. I think. Um, so, and of course, you know, Harry Eden was a legend for Saints <laughs> and um, and for uh, East and South Sydney. So, he, so there was that pedigree anyway. Um, mm. And uh, Harry Eden was a great player, but but Mike, yeah, Mike. Uh, you know, he, he was. He, again, he played for East and Manly, and I think it was Parramatta. I think he played for Parra as well. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, a very good, very good, versatile footballer. You know, it's just, again, I, I had to, I had to get my um, my information in Melbourne, uh, sort of second hand. Although by the time he was reaching the end of his career, I was starting to get a regular telecast in Melbourne. So I did see him play a, uh, a fair few of his. 112 games, yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> and he was a, he was a good he was a good player. He was um um I know one thing about him. He was a very good field kick. Yeah. Um, off either foot, which meant you know he, he could uh, either side of the field. Mm. Um, and uh, you know very effective penetrating uh, player because of that. Oh, terrific. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I um I located an old archive um sound file from from last year, uh, which which I used for an online yarn uh, that I did on, on Mike Eden. And the written words were published online, but not all of them. Um, and the um, interview sound file never went to air. So when I found the file, I, I thought the um, Dead in Goal audience would really love it. So um, coming up after this little theme music part, um, Mr. Mike Eden. Um, but thanks very much again, Bob. Really appreciate thank it, mate. No, thank you. Always great to talk, mate. Good to, good to talk to you anytime. In 1966, 67, my uncle Harry lived uh, with us. Um, we had a te- two-bedroom fibro place in Rockdale, yeah. and uh, my brother and I and my uncle Harry shared a room while he played for the Roosters uh, with Jack Gibson in 66, 7 and 8, and then went to St George, uh, played in the 71 grand final. He ended up going on to play with South and still holds the record for the most number of tries scored by a front rower in a season, oh, right. 75. So, oh. you know, being involved and and watching, you know, Kevin Junee gave his jump ride lessons from Graham Langlands and Clive Churchill, how to play fullback. And it was, you know, I was very, very lucky and fortunate um, growing up and... They worked with Dickie Dunn, who was a chairman of selectors, uh, and played for Australia, played for the Roosters. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, our family being a rugby league family was, you know, it was great for me, even though I played soccer most of my childhood yeah. um, as my primary sport um, and just helped out 
with the rugby league when my dad coached and helped fill in when they were short no. until, you know, I got a bit older. So, yeah, the 80s was, for me, great, but watching in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, going to the Sydney Creek ground and, you know, watching the, the Poms in 71 and, you know, grand final day in 71 was, you know, huge um. memories for me. Yeah, it's something that um, people uh, my age are always jealous of. That you know, you look at those overflowing scenes of um, the SCG and all that sort of thing. It's yeah, it just must have been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I remember. I don't know. <coughs> yeah, you could look it up. You Google it. But yeah. Alan McKean played in his, I think, one test against Roger Millwood in '71, and we came in to to sit in the Sheridan stand, couldn't get there, and my father had to push us up on the uh, wire fencing to, to between the members and the Sheridan stand and oh. we watched the game on his shoulders from there and it was, you know, amazing. Oh, God. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd off his shoulder. Um, I, I, just, um, I won't keep you for very long, but I, 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 thought, um, I thought it was interesting the other day when, when I discovered that you could kick in general play um, and, and for goal with both feet, like... When did you discover that, and did you just think it was normal, like everyone could do it? What was the story well, then? No, I, I was playing soccer. I, I played rep soccer until I was 16, so yeah. um, I could always kick both feet. Just it was a, I was a striker, so I, I hit, you know, I struck the ball reasonably well with my left foot, even though it's my weaker foot. My my father was the coach of our junior team at Beacon Hill, and we had a a goal kicker who was very good at long range kicking, but he, he seemed to fluff once from in front. So <laughs> my father just said, "Look, you kick the the short ones and just knock them over, and and we'll we'll let him do the ones from the touchline yeah. where he didn't get nervous." And that, you know, I found from the right hand side I could kick it easy, easier with my left foot so I was taking shots you know from under 12 through to under 16 and in, ended up taking over the goal kicking and I was captain of the SG ball team at Manly and then yeah. Jersey flag and President's Cup and I was a goal kicker and <clears throat> I just did it because I took the corner kicks at soccer I could curl the ball in um, and just did it with the, the football practice and found that it was easier to do right. left foot from the right hand side because I naturally curled the ball and that yeah. lowered the angle or it made the angle harder if you kick with your right foot from the right hand side. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense because in, in soccer you have to kick with both feet, don't you, for those corner yeah. sort of opportunities. Yeah. Oh yeah. All oh, right. So, so, so I, yeah. I just. It just came natural in the end. Oh, fair enough. I, although I did practice a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and as you say, if you're doing that from from a very young age, it's just going to become part of your game, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and in general play, you know, yeah. grubber kicking, kicking, punting, left foot. I wasn't as strong, but sometimes you get caught um, yeah. on the wrong foot, and you've just got to <laughs> improvise, and that's what I did. No, no fair, fair enough. But what do you what do you so like in eighty three you won the Rothmans Medal like what, what what what's what what are your fondest memories of that year because it wasn't a 
premiership winning year for the for the Roosters by any stretch. But like, what 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 happened that year for you? Did you just hit your straps, or because that was your first year at the Roosters, wasn't it? I look, I was the Bob Fulton had left the Roosters um, and took over a, a whole lot of players with him. Oh. I I remember on Mad Monday. Um, I was a non-drinker, so I went to the, the Brookvale Rex Hotel mm-hmm. after we lost the grand final yeah. in 82. And I rang Ken Arthurson's secretary, Barbara, now his wife, and <laughs> said, look, you know, I want the Roosters have given me a, a great deal. Um, they've given me till four o'clock this afternoon to agree. Yeah. Uh, what, what can you do? And she just said, put them off. Ken's over at the cook ground. Um, with the kangaroo team and he just said they're not going to go anywhere near what they're offering you at the Roosters but we'd love you to stay and I just said look you've offered me three grand Roosters offered me 25 I've (laughs) newly married got a kid on a university helping out here so they didn't I signed with the Roosters um, and I think I remember I played the first game at fullback uh, against West. Went all right. Laurie Fryer put me in at five eight, and the next game against Cronulla, and I went went okay that day and, and stayed at five eight. So um, it was a struggle. Alan Neal and myself were the halves. Kevin Hastings was the incumbent and had had to move to lock and. You know, we didn't have a great... Not everyone was playing for the same reasons or for the coach or for the team. Mm. So it was, it was tough. Um, I was driving over from Manly and not part of the eastern suburbs sort of culture. Yeah. Uh, but I really enjoyed my football. You know, there was a lot of new blokes there. It was a new team and we, we were doing very well. What I do remember is playing with a needle most games. I dislocated my collarbone oh. uh, early in the season. Yeah. And so I played about 15 games with a, with painkillers, painkilling needles. And that was, that was tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end of the season, I had a, an operation where they cut two inches off my collarbone <laughs> because it had died by getting bashed each week. Oh, seriously? Having yeah. the needle. So uh, I don't have a, couple of inches on my left collarbone cut off. So a what, big what, hole there. Oh, big hole, seriously. And, yeah. Huh. And, and those days you just played. Yeah. You know, there was no replacements and you just, uh, if you got injured, you stayed on the field. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, modern fans still don't get that. Yeah. We're talking about re- changing replacements from eight to six, but then you've got the that alternative universe that you played in where you just didn't have any changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the 82 grand final, uh, I was on the bench and Michael Blake got 16 stitches in his head as well as he had a fractured ankle before half-time and I warmed up for 40, 40 minutes and Ray Ritchie in the end said, no, oh, no, we won't put you on, we'll leave him there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, just, he was very tough, Michael, and you know, what they were going to do is move Philip into the centres and be yeah. the half-back the way it was most of the years so yeah. You, yeah it was a lot of players played injured for the for the whole game it was a 
a tough sport. Tough sport. It still yeah. is a very tough sport. You know, they, they they hit harder and stronger, and they run faster now. But yeah. the 80s was interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, and so just two more questions. Um, what type of player were you? Like, if you were looking at yourself from from a distance, like outside of your body, like, what? How would you describe yourself? I, I trained very hard and I was very fit. And towards the end of the the half, I'd pick out, you know, the the guys that were a bit tired, the bit bit bigger, and 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 just play what was in front of me and and try and make a break so I was an attacking player I did a lot of you know chips over regather or chips over for my centers um, <clears throat> uh, and yeah uh, so I you know I was a very attacking player I, I like to set up plays I like to think I threw the last pass <laughs> um, in a lot of movements with people score tries um, I didn't tackle a lot. I, I played in the second line. You know, we halfbacks played in the second line. I mean, I just noticed uh, in the newspaper clipping <coughs> that Alan Neal made four tackles in one game against St George, and I made about six or eight. Yeah, um, yeah. The top tackler made twenty-five tackles. So, mm. you know, I don't know whether the counts are different or, but half and five eight didn't do a lot of defence. So. Yeah. You know, it was never, you know, Kevin used to always, Kevin Hastings would always say he did all my defence. That's probably right. <laughs> yeah, there always seems to be those barges um, between the, the halves and, and, and the forwards. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, I was going to ask you something else, but I'll, I'm going to ask you this question. Like, um, you, yeah, you really seem to enjoy sharing the mementos and stuff like that on Twitter and and like you, you really loved your time playing, didn't you? You really, you seem, I, I, you seem to be still celebrating it. Yeah, yeah. I love the look. The sport. It's our game. Yeah. You know, people <clears throat> criticise players. They criticise referees. They criticise administration. Look, I just love it. And people who who actually are still involved in our game, whether they're players administrators, referees, you know, need to be applauded for, for doing their best and they don't, um, they don't try and make mistakes. Um, yeah. They actually try and do their best and, you know, it's not for selfish reasons. I, I just love the sport. I love all sports, you know. Yeah. Um, but our, our game's fantastic. It is the greatest game of all and I'm just glad mm-hmm. I was had a small part to play and was able to play first grade. I mean, anyone who's played one first grade game, John Reinberger, unbelievable, played one first grade game. It happened to be a grand final oh. um, where they won 35 nil against the, the Roost, uh, against St George. Yeah. yeah. He played at the Roost. Jack Gibson brought him from under 23s to play one game. And then he retired. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, there's some great stories in our game, and yeah. just to play, to play it was a privilege, and I'm, I'm very lucky. Yeah, yeah, no, just yeah, and, and people can relate to that. Hey, like people, it's such an such an Aussie thing to to catch up with a bloke and play one game, and it happened to be the grand final. Like that's such a an Australian 
against the odds sort of thing, isn't it? And people relate to it. Yeah, yeah. and Jack Gibson did that. Steve Halliwell's a, a good mate of mine. Great story. Uh, you know, 19-year-old superstar St George signing went to Parramatta for, with Jack Gibson. Jack Gibson put him on in, with 10 minutes to go uh, in the 1982 grand final. He was able to do the lap of honour and get the trophy. And, oh. Um, you know, there's some, there's some great stories in the, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, all through, you know, where, um, where there's the underdog is triumphed. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, no, great stuff, Mike. And, and just finally, what, what, are you, what are you up to these days? I, I looked at your website, but I thought I'd ask you just to put it in I'm the right words. I'm a solicitor yep. here in Albury. My, yep. my latest, um, you know, the, in, as far as our game's concerned, um, I'm drafting an application on behalf of Albury Thunder to play in the New South Wales Cup. So oh, wow. hopefully they'll be playing in the 2020 season. Yeah. I'm also the vice chairman of the PRLMO, which is the Professional Rugby League match authority, uh, officials. So the, the referees, I'm helping negotiate a new enter, enterprise bargain thing agreement with the NRL on behalf of the referees. Um, Grant Atkins um, is a son of a a good friend of mine, Graham, who played for Parramatta and Eastern Suburbs with me in the 80s. He was a premiership player in the 70s. His son, Grant, is a a referee, and so I'm helping the referees uh, get what they deserve and hopefully a a decent pay increase and some uh, increased... um, assistance in their uh well their their employment uh, agreement because they're they're doing it tough and they need mm. all the support uh, we can give them and the nrl can give them i think yeah they seem to be wanting to, to help them out yeah yeah so i'm i'm helping with uh negotiate their uh you pay wow for next year so, so, so you're up to your eyeballs in the game still, really, aren't you? <laughs> oh, well, as a, as a volunteer, I don't get paid no. for any of those positions. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 and, and that's the thing. I like a lot of people are, aren't they? Like there aren't there aren't many paid positions in the game at all, really. Like, no, and yeah. it's easy to throw rocks from the cheap seats and and mm. and bag those that are trying to do their best for our game and. Yeah. Uh, unless you want to get in and do it yourself, I think you should uh, hold back your criticism. Yeah. <laughs> you're allowed to, yeah, you know, free speech is good and you're allowed to have your say and that's that's what we love about the fans. You know, there's four or five, or there's four stakeholders in our game. There's the, the players, the referees, the administrators and the fans and they're all equally as important.